Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, how's it going? Welcome to Swim Podcast Episode 4. My guest on this one is Scott Ian of Anthrax. Uh, Whilst he was over recently in London, uh, he was doing like promo stuff basically for the new Anthrax album for All Kings. Um, But as I'd interviewed him about a week before, maybe two weeks before on my show on Radio 1, I felt like we'd probably just be going over the same ground. I didn't really want to do that. And I asked if he was cool if we could do the podcast and talk about other stuff other than the album. And we do go into it a little bit at the end um, with regards to like the video that they put up online recently. But that was in relation to other stuff we were talking about. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoyed listening back to it, actually, whilst I was just checking through things and getting all the levels right, which I hope I've done because there was a few comments last time that that it needed to be a bit louder. So hopefully, you know, I'm still finding my feet with this and and, uh, working it out. So if you have any comments, hit me up on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Daniel P. Carter or at Swim Podcast, either of those um this is scott ian check it out so it's always awkward for that first moment to get the ball rolling as it were but uh i was thinking about this and there's um there's there's a couple of things that that uh that i hold really close to my heart about anthrax and the first thing was um the first ever big show i went to was was you guys at uh hammersmith odeon it was actually on my birthday as well it was when you had testament was supporting so it was when the among the living yeah and it was when the i think you filmed the 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 video there yeah so so that's always been that was my whole introduction into that world which was an amazing thing cool which which i hold very dear um and then the second thing was which is weird was uh an old band that i did with, with some buddies um a while ago ended up using a sample at the start of the record and it was from when you took Kirk Hammett to CBs yeah. to see Crumb Suckers, uh-huh. and you, you know that audio is yeah. online where they yeah. they where they get him up to play Hub Run, right? And uh, I think it was like Tom, Tommy Carroll, Tom, yeah, yells. I can't remember what he said, He's but he like, yells something about Kirk can get off the stage or something. Yeah, yeah. And then Billy set him straight as I as I recall in the audio. Oh really? Billy Milano's like, that's what you get for being a dick, Tommy. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's. I was there. Yeah, I don't I, remember it. I mean, I remember it happening. I don't remember the exact details, but I, I think that's crazy. A, I think that's a good, that's one thing that I, that I'd like to talk about. That whole sort of 
that whole point in, in history because I think something that, that we take for granted now is that, you know, even, you know, people listen to everything now. And mm -hmm. I think your band had a big part in, in obviously with the, with Bring the Noise, that was a big deal. But it, when you go back even further, um, and I've like, you know, you read about some of the stuff about those sort of matinees that were happening at CB's when the New York hardcore scene was coming through. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really, it was really two distinct groups, wasn't it? Like you had you had CBs and it would be all the, the punk kids and the skinheads and the hardcore kids. And then you had, was it Lamore in Brooklyn? Uh-huh. Which was where all the metal shows were, right? Yep. But it was weird that, that people didn't feel they could go to both. Because if you turned, I remember reading some stuff like if you turned up to those shows and you had long hair. Yeah, there was no crossover back then at all. Um, I didn't even know about I think, look, I had obviously heard about early punk rock because I, I was a Ramones fan. But they had already, even in the late 70s, they had already kind of transcended punk. I mean, I saw them on TV on the Sha Na Na TV special. If you remember who they were, they were like a yeah. 50s cover band kind of thing. They had their own TV show back home then. And I saw the Ramones on that show. And then it wasn't long after that I found out the Ramones were from Queens, not, not far from where I was living growing up as a kid. I was 15, 14, 15 years old. And then I saw him play Queens College around 79 or something like that. So, but, uh, and I, of course, I knew who the Sex Pistols were, but it wasn't my thing. I was a hard rock and a metal kid. I had long hair. So it wasn't until 82, it would have been 82, I think, uh, I went with Neil Turbin, the first singer of Anthrax. He was more connected to Manhattan than, than Danny Lilker or I was. We were much more Queens kids. We'd go into the city, but like Neil hung out in the city. And uh, um, so I went with him to see, I think it might have been Danny was there too. We went to see The Exploited at a club called Great Gildersleeves, which is kind of one of the forgotten New York City downtown clubs. It was only a one block north of CBGB's downtown and also tons of hardcore and punk shows back in the day. But... It doesn't really ever get talked about. Like people always remember CBGBs for obvious yeah. reasons. But yeah. anyway, we went to the exploited show, and we sat in this tiny little—you can't even call it a balcony. It was like one, two rows of seats above the floor. And uh, I just looked down. I couldn't believe what was going on in the crowd. You know, all these these punk kids and skinheads and whatnot, um, slam dancing and pogoing, and there was stage diving and. I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I got to get down there. I, I, want, I was like, I was drawn to it. And uh, Neil said, you know, you can't go down there, man. You have long hair. They'll, they'll, beat, they'll beat the shit out of you if you go down there. And I'm like, why? He goes, they don't like metal people. Like, there's no, and he wasn't lying. It was true at the time. Um, there was no crossover. And um, so then it took, I didn't go back to another show. It was either it was probably late '83 or early '84 where I had already gotten into New York hardcore bands. At that point, I was listening to like Agnostic Front and Adrenaline OD and other stuff, and and uh, um, I really wanted to go to shows. Murphy's Law, but always too scared to go to CBGBs. I found out about the Sunday matinees, and yeah. I would always get, "Oh, you don't want to go down there. You'll get your ass beat. Skinheads will beat your ass." And so. You know, I was a skinny little kid with long hair, you know, 
was I at the time, 18 or 19 years old. There's no way I was going to go down there. And then finally, my friend Robert and I, it was an Agnostic Front Murphy's Law show. And we're like, you know, we forget, we missed so many great shows already. Like, let's just do it. Fuck it. Let's just do it. We'll stand at the back. I'd never been in CBGBs before. I had no idea. I was like, wherever it is, we'll just stand near the door. And if it, and if it even seems like anyone's going to want to beat us up, we'll just run away. We'll just run. You know, what's the worst that can happen? We'll escape, you know? He's like, all right, because I wasn't going to go myself. I had to have someone go with me. I yeah. if I went myself, no one ever see me again. And uh, so we went down there and just kind of kept the lowest profile that we possibly could. And it was, a, it was a heavy scene, man, walking up, and there's a whole crowd of people out front. That's because everyone would go outside between the bands and, and uh, you know, all punks and skinheads. I think I saw one dude with long hair, but he wasn't a metal guy by any, you know, sense of the word. He was like a guy who probably lived in Tompkins Square Park at the time and, you know, squatting somewhere. And There was no metal dudes. And uh, we just stood at the back. And people kind of were looking at us, but nobody was, like, wanting to beat us up. Um, no one was talking to us either. You know, it was very much like a scene. And uh, we just stood at the back. And at some point during that is when Billy Milano walked up to us. You know, it had to have been after Fistful of Metal. So it was early 84. That's coming together a little more in my brain now because he came up to me and he knew I was a dude in Anthrax. So the album had to have been out at that point. And uh, so it would have been early 84. And... Uh, and he came up to me and, you know, and I see this guy walking towards us and I'm like, get ready. <laughs> we got to get out of here. Get the door. This scary looking dude in a psychos t-shirt probably, or probably was wearing an agnostic front skinhead shirt. And uh, he's like, aren't you the guy in the anthrax? I'm like, uh-huh. You know, please don't kill me. And uh, he's like, I'm Billy Milano. I play bass in the psychos. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he's like, do you want to come meet the guys in the agnostic front? I'm like, uh-huh. And I'm thinking, like, is he just luring us backstage so they could beat us up? And but it wasn't the case at all. They were everyone was super cool. And uh, but he said, "No, you're right." I said to him afterwards, "I thought you were gonna beat me up." He's like, "I'm not gonna beat you up. Other people in here want to beat you up." He goes, "But now you know us. So if they want to beat you up, they have to fu they have to go through us, and nobody's gonna fuck with us, you know, because Agnostic Front were the kings of yeah. you know, let's go." It's like nobody's gonna fuck with them, and from that point on, that was it. Like that was my entry into hardcore matinees, and I was there every Sunday. If I was home, which was most of '84, '85, even '86, because we weren't a touring band yet, it wasn't until like late '86, and then into '87 we started getting busy touring. But those like '84, '85, '86, I was there every Sunday practically, and. Man, you know, and there at the Ritz, everywhere, Gildersleeves, anywhere there was a show, Danceteria, um, that was, you know, I just, I was a spectator, you know, yeah. I will never claim New York hardcore, I will never, I was not OG, like, uh, yeah, I was one of the first metal dudes for sure, if not the first metal dude, but, uh, um, you know, that's, people had already been going to shows there for three years before I showed up, that yeah. whole thing had started years before, I was just a fan who was lucky enough to meet some really cool people and get accepted. And that totally opened my mind to a whole other world of music, you know, which mm. then, of course, came out through the music I was making and the T-shirts I was wearing and, and all of that crap. And, you know, but yeah, it was it was an amazing, amazing 
thing to get to be a part of and to witness and to be there to see some amazing shows back then. It was it was incredible. Yeah, it was an incredible scene. And I think it's it's interesting to see that that people can't even probably comprehend that that's the way it was back then. That it was like you like this, your hair is this length. You you don't come anywhere near us, and vice yeah. versa. And but then it was like people from that scene then started going over to see. And and then every then there was this weird cross pollination. Yeah, well, funnily enough, it was it was actually the skinheads in New York were the most open minded people at that time, even more so compared to the punks and the metal kids, because the skinheads totally like you know look more and more long hairs and and metal people started showing up at CBGBs. I wasn't the only one who was intrigued by this hardcore sound and was in love with this sound but was like kind of scared to go to shows slowly but surely more and more people started taking that risk on a Sunday and realizing hey nobody's beating me up you know like but yeah by 85 when the scene started to get trampled a bit by by metal kids then there was that's when there was more schism because the scene was just it was changing some people didn't want change but you can't stop change yeah but when the hardcore people started coming to metal shows because we started inviting all our friends to come see Anthrax play. Like, we'd play the Ritz, and we knew that, okay, the security there for a metal show, they're not going to understand. Like, they, they're going to beat on the kids if they come over the barricade and try and stage dive and all this. So we would get, like, Jimmy from Murphy's Law and this guy, Big Charlie, who was a big scene guy back then, and a guy named John in a wrecking machine, and... Billy and all these guys and they would bring a crew down and they would work security because they knew how to treat the kids if they're coming over the barricade just to stop the kids and just to whipped. handle it yeah wow. yeah stop them so we started inviting the hardcore our hardcore friends to our shows and they would not only would they work the stage but they would also be stage diving and doing stuff so you know 1500 metal kids would be seeing like Jimmy from Murphy's Law stage diving at an anthrax show going whoa that looks like fun <laughs> But then, you know, they come up on stage and act like idiots. So it was there was a learning curve, yeah. certainly, for the, for the metal kids. And I also think there was a learning curve for the metal scene just on seeing skinheads and, and stuff at the shows. Because yeah. even in the other way, it was like a reverse racism thing almost. Like, what are these skinheads doing here at our shows? You know, like skinheads showing up at Lemoore's or whatever. And, you know, metalheads thinking that, oh, they're here to beat us up or... Um, so, you know, it was a bit of a learning curve for everybody, I think. But um, the sad part about the whole thing was like by 85 and certainly in 86, there was so much cross-pollination. And of course, the metal scene by that point had become so much bigger than the hardcore scene. Hmm. And, you know, I think it started ruining it a little bit, certainly at CBGB's because you can only fit a couple hundred people in there. Yeah. And, you know, now all of a sudden you got all, all these metal kids trying to get in the shows and getting in the pit and acting like assholes and just getting in there for violence sake and not actually just going in there and dancing which is what it was really all about back then was people as sick of it all says demonstrating their style and uh and metalheads just turned it into a you know american football match down in there just like just insanity and uh violence for violence sake and and that changed and uh it was okay for metal shows, but nobody at CBGB's wanted that to happen. So yeah, there there were fights and things like that going on. And then 
by 86, you had metal kids who were like listening to hair bands and then would shave their head and start wearing like a Gorilla Biscuits t-shirt or, you know, whatever, whatever the most extreme thing was by that point, you know, 86. Um, And then wanting to fight me because I had long hair and I was the guy in Anthrax and they're like trying to be cool. Meanwhile, they had, they owned both Anthrax records and, you know, I had like, I, I had a couple of these young skinhead kids like follow me home one day on the subway and like I had to turn around and say, all right, I can't take three of you, but one of you's getting knocked out. Let's go. And then they, they were like, fuck you, faggot. And then they ran away. And and, uh, and then I stopped going to shows kind of after that because I was like, you know, this is bullshit. I'm not going to go to CBGBs and get stabbed just so some kid who just shaved his head could say, oh, I stabbed the guy from Anthrax. Like, you know, it, it got weird at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a bummer. But I did have like a really amazing kind of three-year window down there where – it was it was incredible. You're credited as taking, like I said, with taking Kirk down there. You, I heard that you and Charlie took James down to like a Broken Bones show. Yeah, that was in like January of '85 because Metallica was playing two or three nights at Lemoore's, and we brought James down to see Broken Bones. I think Cliff was there too. Yeah, I, I think you know that's that's a huge step because you guys going down and seeing these bands and it then taking on board certain elements of what's going on with them musically. You know, I mean. Thrash was a whole new, a whole new revolution within that scene of music because not only was there the, you know, the 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 energy and and speed and the ferocity and whatnot that you had from that scene, it cut a load of the the um some of the more cheesy elements that that metal had and and thrash came along and just kicked kicked the table away with that and then it became you know with you guys and and then when Dan and John went on and did Nuclear Assault right. and and it became more sort of socially aware as well. Sure, sure. And I mean, that, that was a big it deal, I think. predates that because it was already going on the West Coast too. Like if you go back, watch the institutionalized video from Suicidal and like time you see Tom Araya in that video, you know. So, um, there and, you know, those guys from the beginning too were, you know, you'd always see Jeff or, or Dave wearing like a DRI shirt and mm. – um, so it was it was happening on the West Coast as well. I obviously can't speak for going to the shows because I wasn't there there in eighty three and eighty four going to punk shows. But mm. um, certainly, you know, uh, Slayer certainly Jeff was way way into that stuff too at the same time. So yeah, we were all you know listening to the same stuff, uh, whether it be West Coast stuff like DRI and Suicidal, or you had Corrosion from North Carolina. You had even predating the British, uh, predating, sorry, the New York stuff. Like, I was in the Discharge before I was in the Agnostic Front. I hadn't even heard of Agnostic Front yet. I was already listening to Discharge and Exploited and GBH yeah. and stuff like that, but mainly Discharge. I mean, for us, that was one of the most influential records, the Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing record. Yeah. For us, man, that was, that was like, as important to us as Killers was, you know, like... Uh, um, it was or or ace of spades or that discharge record was like everything for a while and i know you know james was well into that too and um we were all listening to hardcore and punk at that time at least certain guys in every band yeah not everyone in anthrax like at the time joey and danny weren't listening to hardcore music it was mostly it was me charlie and frankie were listening to it um but yeah, so all of the all of that certainly 
the British stuff and then the New York and the West Coast stuff was definitely a big influence on on the all the early thrash bands. Yeah, I mean, that's such an exciting time that it created this whole new genre within metal. And I mean, that hasn't... I mean, that, and then the same thing didn't happen again until years later right. when, with, with the new metal thing. And again, that was that was because of New York bands from from kind of that sort of scene, I guess, with like stuff like Helmet and Unsane and Quicksand. Yeah, yeah. Of I mean, yeah, it's funny because you, you know, and you can even go further back because you know, yeah, Walter who was in Gorilla Biscuits and then mm. went on the form Quicksand, and then that influences a whole another scene that comes out of that you know like it's pretty crazy yeah yeah it's 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 an interesting thing man um and then i and then as i said the thing with with public enemy which is probably another huge part of the start of the next new genre to appear in metal like when you think about it you've when you think about it i am responsible for <laughs> all you've done everything i you made everything i am responsible for all of heavy metal Exactly. Even I'm even That's responsible I'm for say. Sabbath because we <laughs> want to. We could we could now we could segue into Doctor Who. Um, Corey and I actually have a TARDIS. We just don't tell many people. And uh, um, I actually one time took the TARDIS without telling Corey, and I went to Birmingham, and I'm responsible for Tony Iommi's hand injury. <laughs> I I made that happen so he would then have to tune the strings down exactly. and create heavy metal well I, you know in, <laughs> we can laugh about it but it, it's, it's true enough though with with the i mean the public enemy thing i remember at the time it was like it was such a big deal didn't you know people hadn't done, i mean okay you can look and go well there was the aerosmith run dmc thing right. but but it was, the difference but, that being was you know and nothing look i'm a i'm a massive fan of both of those groups yeah um that was a that was put together by rick yeah you know that was his thing and that was also that was a rap band covering a rock song mm. we were a metal band covering a rap song we yeah. we went the other direction um and then we took it on tour around the world which was was you know a big difference too running and and aerosmith never took it any further than you know kind of like the novelty single, which is amazing. It's an amazing piece of music. It still stands up today, like as one of the most important moments in rock music. Yeah. And uh, would bring a, bring the noise have happened without that? Yes, absolutely. Because we had already done "I'm the Man." We had already written "I'm the Man" even before I think "Walk This Way" was even done. So, um, you know, I put it this way: I was listening to Run DMC before Aerosmith was. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I was I, I was buying their twelve inch singles, <laughs> and then was lucky enough to know people who worked at Def Jam, and like a couple times even was like hanging out at Rick's Rick Rubin's apartment in Manhattan a million years ago, and would like go to his apartment and listen to records. So, um, you know, that's another scene. I was listening to that stuff the same time I was listening to hardcore, and the same time I was listening to metal in the in the fall of nineteen eighty one when I started college at St John's in Queens. I mean, on my Walkman, I was either listening to Killers or Run DMC or, you know, some kind of punk record, you know, like it, that's all I was listening to. I would just walk around campus, skipping classes, listening to music yeah. until I finally dropped out. So um, I was listening to all of that at the same time, always. All of it moved me the same way. Yeah. And when... How how did the whole um, SOD thing come about? Because that was obviously, as you've said, you mentioned Billy coming over and 
initially being this scary dude. Well, I mean, I mean that it came out of our love for hardcore. It it came out of it came out of boredom in the studio. Yeah. It came out of a, a whole number of uh, uh, of things of you know me sitting around with a lot of free time up in Ithaca, New York, when we were making Spreading the Disease, and Joey had just joined the band, and we were just we had I was done with my guitars, and I had a lot of free time on my hands, and. And, uh, and I was in Ithaca, New York, upstate, and there's nothing to do. And I wasn't a big drinker, and so I would sit around the studio, and I started drawing this character. I started drawing these comic strips of this character who's a zombie, basically, and he hates anything living. So it's it was equal, you know, across the board. Anything alive, uh, from <laughs> a flower, yeah. anything. He hates it all, right? So I would draw these little very politically incorrect comic strips, and and kind of hang them up around the studio out of boredom, uh, you know, just for a laugh. And uh, and I didn't know how to make a comic book, but I knew how to make an album. And so I started writing songs based around these comic strips. And after about nine or ten of those, these really, really stupid, short, you know, songs, just blasts of energy with maybe one riff or two riffs and just ridiculous lyrics about anything from, you know... Uh, milk to um, menstruation, racism, and menstruation, or menstruation. Yeah, whatever. Just ridiculous. And uh, and then I called Danny Loker and I said, you know, because he was as equally into hardcore as I was and Charlie was, and and I said, hey man, I'm writing these crazy songs. They're all like a minute long and some even shorter. And um, do you want to come up to Ithaca and check this out and work on it with me? Because we still remained friends, even though he was out of Anthrax. Our relationship wasn't the same because we didn't see each other every day, but we were still friends. And he was like, yeah, he came up to Ithaca. And like a week later, we had written the rest of the record. I think it was actually Danny who actually wrote Speak English or Die, of all people. But uh, um, because we were making fun of it. That's one thing still to this day. I, I had morons calling me out uh, uh, online recently after the whole and I'm not going to rehash the whole Phil Anselmo thing but on my end of it how could you say anything about him when you're the guy behind SOD and I'm like if I still have to explain this now then you were really that dumb like you know from 1985 I mean yeah granted maybe people didn't read interviews back 30 years ago from then but yeah, we were making fun of people who had that attitude. We it wasn't us who had the attitude. It yeah. was about actual people who would think that way and how stupid they are. And it was this character, you know, that we created who's like, this is the worst thing. This is the worst dude ever. His name's Sergeant D. He's the worst guy ever. Like but I guess still to this day people somehow think somehow that I'm a racist. I actually had a guy say how could you call him out about white power and ask him to donate to a Jewish uh, center? White power has nothing to do with the Jews. I'm like, see, that's why people <laughs> need to be educated. But anyway, that bit of a tangent. But yeah, that's SOD came out of that, out of our love for hardcore and, uh, um, and just wanting to, wanting to express that. And we had it in us to do that. Obviously, though, coming from the metal side of things. Yeah. So, of course, it, it was going to sound more metallic than it was going to sound hardcore. You know, so the riffs were obviously more metal-sounding riffs, and the production was more metal-sounding than a hardcore record and all that. So, yeah, we just came at it from our angle and created this monster, you know, a 22-minute 
monster of a record with yeah. you know some really really crazy heavy riffs and fast parts and and ridiculous lyrics and, i love uh, that record and uh yeah i mean i from i could be wrong but it's also i think might be the first recorded blast beat yeah because i've heard you know people from napalm death and all the early grindcore stuff saying crediting that record with the song milk where that was the first blast beat and yeah it's just crazy shit so there you go you invented grindcore too i didn't <laughs> what charlie did yeah actually that was Loker. <laughs> Lilker knew, I think it was Danny who, because I remember Danny saying, like, you think Charlie could, we're writing this really fast stuff. Is he going to be able to keep up? I'm like, dude, he could play faster than we can. Yeah. I'm like, anything you could play on your bass, Charlie's going to go faster. Like, and that's, that was that, what that song was about. Milk was like, let's just play it as fast as we can. And I think that's where that thing came out of. Just like, we need to play faster. Yeah. And I think it's it's funny that it it kind of comes around as well that you said that initially that record which you you know you piggybacked off the back of another recording essentially right, right. Um, came about through you drawing comics. Yeah, we we piggybacked and, it off spreading the disease. Our gear was still set up, so we were able. That's why we were able to make the record in three days because all we literally had to do was turn the equipment back on and, yeah. and do it. Um, but yeah, it, it it came out of like I said. I didn't know how to get a comic published. I had no idea, like how how to even think about or start it. Like, I would call up Marvel and say, "Hey, uh, I've I created this really weird character." Like, <laughs> no thanks. Um, but yeah, I figured there's plenty of crazy records out there. You know, especially in the, the hardcore and the punk world at the time, there were a lot of politically correct. You know, I, I sorry, politically incorrect. Sorry, <laughs> um, you know, lyrics out there at the time. So I figured, well let's just make an album of this insanity and, and see if people get the joke or not. Because yeah. we didn't care one way or the other. It made us laugh, and that's all that mattered. Yeah, and that's a ballsy move as well, I think. You know, like, people do it in comedy, and 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 it's and it's accepted. But, but even then, you know, it's weird how comedy, you are allowed to push those boundaries a little, you know? Do you know I, I think it is a very fine line, because I understand what you mean. Yeah, it, I also think if, and this is not to say Danny and I were funnier than anyone else, but I think somehow we we just found the magic formula on that record to do what we wanted to do and and have it work. And yeah, some look, some people are going to be offended by anything, no matter what the explana- explanation or the context or anything. But, you know, if anyone on the planet knows Danny and I, then, then you know the truth, and and uh, and then you know where that came from. And I think we were able to make a record called "Speak English or Die" that was not offensive. I mean, when it, it cuts in 1987, and Anthrax is opening some shows for White Snake, right? And Rudy Sarzo is backstage wearing an SOD Speak English or Die t-shirt. And I'm like, wow, Rudy Sarzo's wearing an SOD shirt. That's crazy. So I had never met him before, and I walked up to him, and I introduced myself, and, you know, hey, nice to meet you. And I'm like, dude, SOD. He's like, yeah, cool shirt, right? I'm like, do you know that record? He goes, no, it's a record. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it's actually me and Charlie from Anthrax. It's a side thing we did a couple years ago. He's like, oh, I just liked it because I'm Cuban and it says speak English or die and I thought it was hilarious. So we did something right. 
Right. There you go. Yeah. It was, we got the Rudy Sarzo stamp of approval. Well, I think it's funny that that, that comes about as well, as I said, from from you writing comics and then and then you know fast forward you know you're saying you didn't you did that record because you didn't know how to write comics and then all of a sudden or get comics published rather and and now you know that part you look at your resume and it's like written comics for dc which is crazy i mean (laughs) how did did that all come about i mean that's yes a dream because for me when i was a kid right and I was watching your band and, and, and listening to those records and a lot of the records that we've spoken about already, or rather you've spoken about already, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to play in a thrash metal band right? and I wanted to draw comics. That was it. And obviously neither of those are obtainable goals. I remember, I remember, it, right? <laughs> I remember sitting at school and, and being told, well, what are you going to do when you leave school because you can't do this? Right. No one actually gets to be in a band and... and do that that's just like a weird fancy life and so is drawing comics so what are you going to do and and yet and i and i imagine that that was kind of the same for you right oh yeah i mean yeah i mean in no uncertain terms um you know look my mother threw me out of the house when i told her i quit college to to (laughs) focus on the band i got thrown out i went and lived with my dad we since made up this is back in like 1981 Hmm. or 82 but uh um yeah, uh, you know, I, but my attitude always was, as much as I was like this complete tenacious prick about it, like I just refused to ever take no for an answer no matter what. But I always had in the back of my mind, I could always go back to college. But why wouldn't I at least give this? I'm going to yeah. put all of my efforts and all of my focus into being in a band. And if it doesn't happen, I'll go back to school. I'll, I'll figure it out. Because I could always go back to school. I can't always make a band happen, and this is my chance right now. So, um, you know, and obviously it, it worked out. But uh, um, because I figured I could always go be a lawyer or a dentist like my mom wanted me. I could always go do that. I, that's that's the easy way out, to be a lawyer. <laughs> I'm going to take the hard route and, and, and try and be in a band. Yeah. Which, like you said, it's like an unobtainable goal. It, it, you know, who gets to do that? Well, exactly. somehow I fucking made it happen. The comics thing had nothing to do with me. I was not out there proactively looking for a deal. Nothing. I got a call one day from my from my then manager. This is like late 2000s, I guess. But uh, yeah, just, hey, next time you're in New York, uh, would you want to go up and have a meeting at DC Comics? I'm like, <laughs> for what? You know, I don't understand. Like, hmm. he said, I don't know, actually, but... I met this editor and and she's a big fan and and she'd like you to come in and have a meeting. I'm like, sure, yeah, even just to go up and see the offices, whatever, of course. So it was it was about a month later. I was going because I live in California, so I was I was going to New York for something band related, and uh, I set up this meeting and I walk in and I'm sitting in an office with like four or five editors, and they're like. So look, we're all fans, and we've been we read a lot of stuff that you put online, and because at the time, like I had a blog on on suicidegirls.com. I used to write a food blog of all things because I'd go on these crazy food adventures around the world, and and uh, not specifically food adventures, but because I travel so much, one of the and I like to eat well. So years ago, I decided I get to go to all these places. I'm going to find crazy shit to eat, and 
So I would write about those things when I'd be on tour and whatnot. But uh, like we write stuff you have online and we're all fans and, you know, your lyric writing. Anyway, we think you have a point of view. And would you like to write a comic? And I literally like turned around to see if they were talking to me because I was like, what are you talking about? You know, like they're like, well, we know like you did Sergeant D and you, you know, you we just feel like you have a point of view. Would you be interested in trying to take a DC character and, and writing a comic? I'm like, yeah, but I don't have a fuck all idea. Like, I don't know how to even start. Like, I don't know how to do that. Writing a food blog is one thing, but, you know, writing a comic book or like writing I Am The Law, I, that's just like writing a, a book report about a comic I like, you know? Yeah. I'm, I was writing about existing things that happened in the Judge Dredd world. I wasn't creating new scenarios for Judge Dredd. And uh, they're like, it doesn't matter. Just it, if you're interested, just think about it. And we'll give you, you'll work with one of the editors here. And and uh, I'm like, all right, I'm definitely interested, you know. And uh, I said, so who, what characters? And they said, anyone in the DC universe. I'm like, I can write a Batman story. They're like, well, Batman comes, there's a lot of caveats with, you know. Yeah. I'm like, like, like you know, like what? Like, what if I wanted Batman to be gay? And they're like, no, you, you can't do that. Like, if you're Grant Morrison, you can do anything you want. And they said that. They're like, you know. Yeah, or Alan there's, Moore. Right. There's certain writers have carte blanche. If they're going to do something with a character, they could do whatever they want. With me, no. Which, <laughs> can of, you imagine of course, the uproar that would Yeah, I mean, of course. And... Yeah. You know, and I get it. I wouldn't want me to do that. So, um, so we just, I start like, you know, what about Superman? What about this? What about that? And finally, I just said, who's a character that I could do anything I want with that no questions asked? I said, because right off the bat, I'm just going to have a hard time knowing I can't do something. Yeah. And that's just going to fuck with my head. And they said, how about Lobo? What do you think of Lobo? I'm like, yeah, you know, I kind of used to in the 80s, like when Simon Bisley was Uh. like, I was like, I yeah, I used to love Lobo. Whatever happened to Lobo? Like, yeah, you know, we've been thinking about it and trying to bring him back and. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I, I think I could probably do something cool with Lobo, especially if nobody's going to be looking over my shoulder. And uh, like, you could do whatever you want. And then we just kept talking and talking. And it was at the time when Marvel Zombies was like the biggest book. Yeah. You know, that Marvel Zombies thing was, which was Kirkman, right? I'm like, why aren't you guys doing any zombie stuff? It's like blowing up for Marvel. And they're like, we want to, but the, the, the powers that be, like Marvel's doing it, we can't do it. Yeah. And then they said, but you could have zombies in your book. You could do whatever you want because you're out of our continuity. It's just going to be a standalone. And I'm like, all right, that makes it even better. And so that's how that whole thing came to be. And um, I just started thinking about Lobo, and I, I wrote the whole story. I wrote it out like I was writing a story, you know, act one, two, and three. Hmm. I wrote it out like an actual story. And then I'm like, all right, now what do I do with it? I've got Here's the whole story. I'm working with my editor, a guy named Ian Sattler. I'm like, Okay, now what? He goes, well, now you got to like break it down in the dialogue. And Sam Keith had the story, and he was starting to send me the pages. Yeah. His art's great. Oh, I love it. And I, I would say, like, well, and I would give some directions about, like, well, no, I need this to happen sooner, or maybe this should be a splash page, or blah, 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 blah. But generally, Sam was on it. He didn't need my help. And uh, I'm like, all right, now what do I do? I have all these pages. He goes, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Well, now you got to break it down in a dialogue. I'm like, "Well, how the fuck do you do that? I've never written dialogue in my life." Hmm. And he goes, "Just I don't know. Just think about what the character. You have your story, so you know what the characters are doing. Now, now make them say it. You know." And I'm like, "All right." And man, I was, that was the that was actually the most frightening thing I've ever done in my life for me. Yeah. Like I've never. I I rarely ever have had stage fright. Like like this for me was like, I can't do this. It's the first time I ever thought that in my life. I I can't do it. I don't yeah. know how to do this. And I I. I just, I kept like, all right, and I would sit down and I would stare at it for an hour and anything I thought in my head that I was going to put into a word bubble, everything just sounded so cheesy to me. And like, the, I'm like, I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I kept procrastinating and like a month went by and my editor was like, all right, you have anything? Like what's going on? I'm like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm like 20 pages in. I hadn't written a word. Right. <sighs> To the point where I was finally just gonna, I'm not, I can't do this. I was gonna say, look, I wrote the story. Get you, you do it. You do the dialogue, or get another writer to take my story, and it could be story by, and then whatever. Yeah. Just, but I don't know how to do this. I, 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 I was, I would sweat. I would break into a cold sweat every time I tried to write the dialogue because I thought it sounded so terrible. Well, it, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, um, as I understand it, like you've you've grown up with comics so you know the medium you know it inside out because you've been a huge fan right. but then to actually be put on the spot within that world yeah and i just didn't know how to do it like yeah. i've written lyrics and i've written stories but i don't know how and it seems like it would be the simplest thing in the world to write how people talking to each other one person says this and then the other person says this and you know it seems easy yeah. until i'm trying to do it and everything sounds so terrible in my brain and then, uh, but but it, then you have to put it in, into context, right? I guess, but it might it, it might have been actually a conversation I had with my wife Pearl, where she was just like, "Just say it how you would say it, you know. Just put yourself in their shoes. Like mm. if you were Lobo and you were the, you know, if you were just say it how you would say it, you know. Put it in your own words. You know yeah. the story. You know what they're doing. So just say what they're supposed to say." And then somehow that opened the door for me. And like two hours later, I had 40 pages written out wow. of like the 120 pages I had to write or something. And I was really into it. Like, just like, holy crap. You know, like, I think this is pretty cool. And I called my editor and I'm like, I'm ready to show you something. And I flew to New York two days later with like, at that point, like half the book. I think I had book one done and I had started book two. Yeah. And, uh, and it's on these big pieces of paper and I used little post-it notes and I'd write, I'd stick the post-it notes on and write, you know, the, the dialogue. So I'm like this big thing I carried on the plane, like I was carrying the Holy Grail, like, oh my God, <laughs> if anything happens to this. And uh, 
I get to the office and I sit with him in, in a conference room, just me and him, and I act out the whole thing. I read all the characters and voices and everything. And, uh, you know, it took whatever, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And uh, he's like, dude, you fucking nailed it. He goes, I have like, I just sat here and I have like three notes. Like, he goes, you fucking nailed it. Like, this is, you really understood like the, and I'm like, wow. He goes, how did you do it? I said, it's, it's just me. Uh, I, Lobo is me, except I'm not a murderer of billions of people. Yeah. But yeah, but it's just me. It's me. Everyone is me. And I'm just reacting how I would react. And, and, uh, and that kind of opened the door for me. And then it became the most, from the most daunting thing to the most fun thing was doing that. And I'm hoping I get to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's amazing. Like, who, who are the people that you... I know you're a Kirby fan, obviously. Oh, I mean, course, yeah, I mean yeah. you... I mean... Well, I grew up on, you know, I grew up from late 60s, so late 60s Marvel and DC, hmm. all the way through, probably, I, I probably, like, I, I stopped seriously collecting early to mid 90s hmm. is when, like, I stopped going to shops once a week, but I still kept up with a lot of titles, but by the time the late 90s rolled around, I was, like, kind of out. Comics had kind of lost me. Um, for whatever reasons, my life changed. Everything, whatever things changed, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, my heyday is you know seventies Marvel and DC, and then of course the, you know, the Renaissance in the eighties with Alan Moore and Frank oh, yeah. Miller and all, of course, the, all that stuff too, which is still the best comics ever written. I mean, still nothing will ever equal Watchmen or Dark Knight. Like, still yeah. to me, those will always be the 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 whole. Those are the holy grails of. Of comics, um, I agree. Yeah. And there's been amazing stuff since, tons and tons of amazing books. But you know, for me to be there, like buying, I remember, like you know, buying Watchmen issue by issue as it was coming out. You know, like mm. that was like the greatest thing in the world. Getting those every time you got a new issue of Watchmen. Yeah, just monthly, mind blowing. Because yeah. that was that was that was a uh, a medium being changed issue by issue. You know, it was and still to this day, everything that's done in comics now even now in like 2016 is all because of Alan Moore and Frank Miller yeah. all because of what they did in the 80s still right now everything goes right back to you could there's like a through line right to that you know yeah I mean it was a literally a sea change you know? it was it was it was a huge renaissance for the whole the whole genre not only with the writing but also with the artwork as yeah. well because I mean obviously Kirby was you know, untouchable, and he inc invented all these incredible new means of telling a story visually. But right. then, but at that time, you know, you had people like Bill Sienkiewicz and and uh, and Frank Miller himself, and and uh, and then people like Dave McKean who yeah. came along and just yeah blew the doors open. Yeah, yeah, and and it, and, it, and people and, what people don't realize too is because people <laughs> might say, oh, whatever, you're just being old school or whatever. But I started reading comics in the late '60s all the way through religiously up until 86. So when those comics came out, it was a revolution because the dialogue in 99% of comics up until Miller and Moore was not that. It was, yeah. you know, comics had really kind of, especially in the early 80s, really started to take a nosedive. Like the quality was really getting bad. Yeah. And it, truthfully, I, I, one could argue if it's not for Watchmen and Dark Knight Comics die. Yeah. Like, comics as a medium could have went away at, at some point. 
you know, if it wasn't for those books. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there were these really pivotal moments like um, like Killing Joke and whatnot, oh, which, gosh, which yeah. just incredible just made people go actually this is a valid art form and mm-hmm. yeah and it, and it became like vital again and and then everything since then had to live up to that to a certain degree and it right. would be like okay and and then uh so then you you did lobo and then you did uh the demon well it's not I, i've written it but it's not uh, i don't know what's going to happen with it it's something still, that's still kind of just sitting in limbo at this point at dc okay. It's obviously something you want to get out, and and I would love would, to. Would you want to do more of but it? But when DC moved from uh, New York to Los Angeles, uh, a lot of people who worked at DC made the choice to not make the move, hmm. and my editor being one of them. So my book just kind of got lost at this point. I ended up meeting Brian Azzarello at Boston Comic Con last year, and we got into talking, and I told him about the book and everything, and and he's, that's the whole thing done, right? Um, well, the story's written. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I need an artist and, and uh, you know, I need pages and then I, and I'll break it down. To, I'll break the dialogue down. But uh, um, I sent the story to Brian Azzarello and obviously he has a little bit of juice up at DC. So uh, um, he told me, he said, you know, I could probably make this happen. And we were texting back and forth and he read the story and he gave me some really amazing notes, which I couldn't. I was like, God, God damn it. Brian Azzarello is like giving me notes. Like, this is insane. And uh, so uh, uh, I'm actually working now with some of the notes he gave me to change some of the story. And I'm hoping then once I change it, when he's not so busy working on The Dark Knight now with Frank Miller, maybe he'll somehow be able to have a minute to get my little book pushed through and, and yeah. out somehow. Who would, you, who would you, in an ideal world, who would you get to draw it? <sighs> That's hard. Yeah. Um, like, who are the people that you... See, for me, when I was, like, a kid, people like, I don't know, like I said, Sinkiewicz and, and Kyle Baker was amazing as well, who mm-hmm. used to work on The Shadow. and You know, it was London Comic Con, actually. London Super Comic Con was this weekend, just gone. Oh, really? Yeah, I went down to that, and, like, Howard Chaikin was there, who, who like, you know, worked on The Shadow sure. and stuff and did Black Kiss and whatnot. And it's weird, because a, a dude that was in my class at... at um, at art school and like you know we would sit and have these conversations uh-huh. and both of us were obsessed with comics and and um now he he's he's drawing bprd for for dark horse and stuff wow. and and he did uh, that stephen king book is it um dark dark tower yeah yeah cool so like he's fully gone on and doing it and it's right. it's, it's awesome to see like the first time i've seen him in a long time and to to catch up in that world because i feel like it's one of those worlds where I've stepped out of and it's kind of shot past me. So to go in every now and then right. and see where things are now. There's a lot of new guys. Yeah. Who, when I was actually looking for artists initially, when Etrigan book was was actually, when was moving, all of whose names I can't remember, but I remember sending my editor like a list of like five or six names, all who I couldn't get because they're all too busy on, on, on books. Yeah. That's what makes it hard too with artists is... Um, because so many guys are on books, you know, monthly books, and they're on deadline all the time, and there's just no time for them to do something that's out of continuity. It just it would take away from their actual work. So it kind of makes it hard to find somebody yeah, really great who's not busy. That's kind of hard. It's, it's nuts as well because, I, I, you know, when you think of those things, like as I said when I was a kid, I was like, oh, I'd love to do that. And, and, I, and I saw, as I said, I saw my mate. His name's Lawrence Campbell, so big ups. And... Uh, 
he was telling me I was he had like issues of the comic, but he also had the pages there. So to actually see those and him talking me through it, and he says that you know it's crazy. Like they'll send like Dark Horse will send like FedEx him a huge like a crate of blank pages and stuff, right. and and uh, he was just telling me how he puts it all together. It's amazing. Cool. I've got so much respect for it, but um, it it just seems like such a mammoth task. Yeah, I was up at Marvel recently. We uh, went up there to do the, Marvel has a podcast and. Charlie and I went up to do the podcast, and uh, um, so they took us for a tour around the offices. And I was shocked because, like the Marvel bullpen, you know, where all the editors work, it's this row of offices, each one, each office being, let's say, a third the size of this room. And th like, let's put it this way: imagine if this room was just as big as this square here, like right here where we're sitting, the like three a of us, pool table square almost, or a bit bigger, with three desks in there and like wow. the main editor and then like two assistant editors sitting in with the main editor and they're each in each little office those three editors will be working on like eight books like it's crazy how wow. much work they have and like i was like this is it like i you know like i was actually extremely <laughs> underwhelmed in a weird way like i expected everyone to have these giant offices with like but it was everything was just crammed and yeah. Like people just like, oh my God, like I couldn't believe the intensity of what goes on, uh, you know, uh, wow. in those rooms. I'm like, this is crazy. Like how many books are you working on? You know, like, yeah. And to, and to see that, that now that it's become this, you know, Marvel and, and DC have, have gone beyond the bounds of that. And they're now, you know, they're, they're running their own TV shows that, you know, Marvel is this huge production company that's making these oh, yeah. incredible films. Like, how do you feel? I mean, you're a huge film fan as well. I feel that I'm a nerd as well, so I can say nerd, right? Sure, of course. Right? So I think, how do, how do you see, like, this world now? Because, like, I look at some of the films that are coming out, like the Marvel films, and, and I just think it blows my mind because I think if I was the kid that I was when I was first reading those titles, it's Yeah, it's you always imagined, you know, like, and even, like, in the 80s when superhero movies, like like, let's say when the first Batman, Michael Keaton, you know, like stuff like that to finally start seeing things realized, yeah. you know, uh, on the big screen like that. Yeah, I mean, like anything else, I, I love some of it, and I and I don't love some of it. You yeah. Know? Um, with the Marvel movies, it's weird. I, I actually prefer Marvel TV. I think Daredevil and Jessica Jones are better than any movie they made because they have more of a chance to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, I I'm, I find these days, especially in that kind of genre whether it be sci-fi, you know, or a comic book or uh, fantasy adventure or whatever, you know, something like Game of Thrones. Uh, I just think that type of media, medium, is uh, better served in a serialized format because mm. you could really take your time mm. and tell a story. Yeah, there are some great two, two and a half hour comic book movies but for me, there's more bad ones than there are good ones still. Even, you know, like, you know, like for me, the Avengers, the first one, I was entertained. By far was not my favorite comic book movie. I, there was like 10, I can think of 10 comic book movies I liked better than the Avengers movie. Avengers 2, I hated. <laughs> like, I hated it. Yeah. Like, super bummed and like about the whole thing. Like, just like, what, really? Like, this is, like, I was really bummed on that movie. But... 
I loved, let's say, like, I just rewatched the first Iron Man because my son watched it for the first time the other night. That movie's great. So yeah. I watched it two nights ago. Totally holds up. Rewatched the first Spider Man with Tobey Maguire. Not as good as first Iron Man, but still, I was entertained. Yeah. Even now, I could laugh at the Green Goblin mask, whereas back when that first came out, that stupid mask, oh my God, I was laughing out loud in the theater. It was so bad. Um, but at least now, at least looking at it, I was like, wow, they th- who thought that was a good idea? Yeah. But, uh, you know, that first hour of that movie when he's learning his powers, I thought was awesome. Yeah, it was great. You know, so obviously, you know, some of the Nolan Batmans I loved. Um, I loved the first Batman with Michael Keaton. I thought yeah. that was a great movie. Um, X-Men 2 is one of my favorite comic book yeah. movies ever made. I loved X-Men First Class too. I thought yeah, that I was awesome. Too. I thought that was nice. Looking forward to the new X-Men. Hmm. Granted, those aren't Marvel Studios, but you know, yeah. it's Marvel Universe. Um, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a whole shitload. But it's it's funny though that Jessica we... Jones and and Daredevil, I can't recommend them enough on Netflix. Yeah, amazing, especially God damn it, Daredevil is just incredible. And now I'm watching Flash too on. Uh, uh, I'm watching that online, and that's literally like reading a comic book every episode. Yeah, I've I, not watched that. I think it's done. You have to, don't expect it to be like, it's not a Christopher Nolan, you know, it's not dark like that. Hmm. This is a much more kind of upbeat, comic booky. if anything, more in my wheelhouse of 70s type of writing. It's it's that kind of more kind of, of like schlocky a, and It's not even, schlocky is not the right word, maybe edging on campiness yeah. and, you okay. know, kind of villain of the week type of thing and... You know, they're always solving a case, and of course there's one story running through the whole thing, but, you know, for TV, it's great. Even for TV, the effects are good. Mm. Like, all the all the, the, the performances are all good. The writing is good. Like, I really feel like I'm just watching a comic book every episode. Well, it's, it's funny that you say about the effects, obviously, because then that brings us around to, to Bloodworks, which is some of the stuff that you've done. It, did that come about through, like, because you, you did obviously the Walking Dead stuff, were you a big? You did the webisode, and then you did the episode where, and you got killed by Carl, which is, I mean, it's it's a that's a double edged sword right there. Yeah. It's like great. I'm in The Walking Dead. That's amazing. I I Tick, tried so killed hard. Killed by Carl. I, Sucks. I I was working Greg Nicotero so hard on that. Going, dude, let me bite Carl. Just just run that <laughs> run that up up the ladder, and let's let's you totally kill off Carl. In this episode, let me be. I will be the hero. You would. I would be. Everyone the, would. My my Walker. I would be the the best Walker in the history of Walkers. If I'm the one that bites Carl, let me let me have this, please. Let me, it would be so amazing. He's just mm. laughing at me. He's not gonna happen, by the way. <laughs> but uh, the backstory of the whole thing, and that's nothing against Chandler Riggs, the actor who plays him. He's such he's a perfectly wonderful human being. Um, he doesn't write it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the backstory of the whole thing is, I get a call from my agent saying, "Hey, you're in New York, yeah. Well, they're going to shoot a pilot for this show that AMC is going to shoot this pilot for a show that's going to be like a talk show to air after The Walking Dead, hmm. and uh, they're asking if you'd want to be involved in that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I, I don't know who would ever watch that show." what that even means but yeah i'll go check it out and i knew the dude chris hardwick who was who was the other guy doing it he's i've known him forever stand-up comedian writer guy and and uh 
So we shoot this pilot in uh, uh, in New York, and basically what it is is, you know, it's like we pretend we just watched an episode of Walking Dead, and now we're talking about it. And then my gig on the show was I was the field reporter where I get sent out to the set. So at the time, I got sent out, uh, you know, not right at the same time, but then I got to go to the, uh, the set where Greg Nicotero was shooting these webisodes between season one and two hmm. of Walking Dead. He shot this six-episode web, web series. And uh, I got to get made up and walk and do the whole thing. And, and um, so that was my – and they cut that into, like, a little two-minute package. And I'm like, here's my day on the set, you know. Which How'd that right. go, Scott? And all that. And yeah. So we shoot. We shoot this pilot episode, you know, for the, what was to become The Talking Dead. I don't know if that airs over here mm, when you guys nah. – probably not. At home, every Sunday when Walking Dead airs, right after it is The Talking Dead. Cool. Well, this little weird idea – for a show where we're going to talk about the show we just watched is now one of the highest rated shows on TV because Walking Dead is so massive and yeah. so much of the audience just stays tuned. So, um, sadly, my field reporter guy on the show, when they decided, yes, we're going ahead with the show, but it's just going to be Chris hosting it, nobody else. So at the time, I was like, how could I even be bummed? I, I'm, I don't even know what I'm losing. I'm not yeah. losing anything. Yeah. Who cares? I don't even know what this show is. Hmm. Of course, it's massive, and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I wish I would have been on that show. But uh, it was about a year later or something, uh, I get an email from Chris Hardwick saying, hey, man, because Chris started Nerdist Industries, Nerdist.com, and uh, it's a go-to place for all things nerdy, whether it's movies, comics, gaming, whatever, everything. Um, and uh, I think he even had a show on over here for a while in the UK on TV for a while. He had his own show here. But uh, anyway, yeah. Nerdist.com. And uh, he said, hey, man, what do you think about doing a show like what you were going to do on Talking Dead, but it'll just be your own thing where you go like hang out on sets or hang out with effects guys and learn shit and see effects done and get killed and whatever. Like, we'll figure it out. But are you interested? I'm like, yeah. Anytime I could do anything with horror, like – get into that world yeah of course that's not a job that's just fun and so that's how the whole show came together um uh you know because chris just thought okay you did this cool thing and no one ever got to see it so why don't we make a show based on that idea that amc decided they didn't want so that's how my bloodworks thing you know came together and i've done a whole bunch of i mean there's like a lot of episodes now i don't know 20 something episodes probably and I'm just starting a new season of them. But yeah, I got to be on Walking Dead because of this little show of mine on the web yeah. on Nerdist. You know, and I'm friends with Greg Nicotero. And I figured, you know what? He had me on the web series. I'm just going to hit him up, see if we could do the big show. And I just said, hey, you think I could ever come be a walker on the? He's like, you could come to Atlanta anytime, dude. I'll, I'll get you made up. And I'm like, okay, I would do that. But what about bringing the show? Because... I had already done a show at Nicotero where we went to K&B. We went to the shop and he let me bash zombie heads and stuff. And, <laughs> and uh, so I was like, you know, we did the show at your shop, but what if could I bring my crew and shoot me on set? He's like, well, I can't make that call. I have to talk to all the other executive producers and hmm. it has to be okayed by the network. And like a week later, we get the call. Everyone's cool. That's you can awesome. totally come and shoot on the set. And the publicist from AMC, the network's like, you realize nobody has ever had this access. Like we don't give Rolling Stone or like Entertainment Weekly or the New York Times or anyone 
nobody shoots on set like nobody you know and but it was all because greg greg made that happen for me and it was just incredible incredible and that kind of opened a lot of doors from my little tiny web series because then other tv productions see wait they did this thing with walking dead the biggest show on tv in america yeah. well we want we want them to cover our show too you know and then you know my director jack he started hearing from other shows and so now it's like all of a sudden this season coming up we've got like we're trying to figure out how we're going to get it all done whereas before we'd be scrambling to just even get anyone to answer our phone calls and but because we got to do walking dead now you know people are, take us a little bit more seriously and um so there's some really cool exciting cool cool stuff coming up that's amazing and it's funny because obviously before we started recording this you showed me the video for um for blood eagle wings yeah. which which looks like you've spoken to a bunch of people that have worked on various uh, episodes of of that show because it's really well it's my director it's, it's my so director of bloodworks jack bennett directed the video ah, okay and uh jerry constantine who does all the effects in it was the first guy i did a show with he was my first ever bloodworks show where they did a cast of my head and he like chainsaw it looks like i'm getting my head chainsawed in half and Jerry's amazing and works on tons and tons of TV shows and movies. Too long of a list for me to mention, but um, yeah, Jerry Constantine, amazing, amazing effects guy, and he, uh, he came down and gave us an amazing, <laughs> did an amazing job and gave us an amazing deal because we could never afford him on an Anthrax video shoot like he gets paid to do TV and movies. Yeah, but he's a bro and he's a metal fan and. Uh, um, and he did some amazing stuff for us. I like you'll see in the Blood Eagle Wings video when it's released. <laughs> it's so full on. I couldn't believe it. And I mean, that's not the finished version, but it just looks, yeah, it's definitely not safe for work. Well, what's cool is like <laughs> these days where you don't have to worry about MTV anymore. Not exactly. that we ever did. It's not like Anthrax ever got MTV love. Hmm. We would get played on Headbangers Ball, you know, or on specialty shows, you know, but now that none of that exists anymore, really. Like, who cares? Why not make the videos you want to make and do yeah. something, you know, that fits the song? And, and this video is the exact concept. I was in this very hotel that I'm sitting in right now back last June of uh, 2015 with Insane Writer's Block. I was over here to host the Metal Hammer Golden Gods, and I had four days off. I came over early with the specific intention of I got four days to work on lyrics because when I'm at, I'm at home with my son, I don't... I don't want to get anything done. I just want to hang out with my son and my wife. And I came over here early to have four days of just, I'm going to be by myself in London and I'm going to write. Get shit done. And after I got a little bit of shit done and then I couldn't get anything done. And again, I'm talking to my wife. She goes, get out of your room. Go for a walk. Get it, get out. And, and I've been to London a billion times. I love this city. So I'm like, all right. And I just started walking around and I, from here. And I ended up down by the tower. Like I walked for hours, just walking, meandering, just brain, just... And I, I just, I, I got into this this idea of, you know, the bones, the blood and bones that any modern city that's been around for millennia, what these cities are actually built on. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, when you think about that, you know, um, and I just had this idea, you know, of like, it's all of the blood and bones buried, neath, buried underneath the city that enables this city to fly, hmm. in a sense. And, and then I... I I had just recently seen an episode of Hannibal where they talk about blood eagle wings. And that was the first time I had ever heard of that. I never even heard. I was like, how? 
am I at 51 first hearing about this? Oh my God. Like that's the fucking sickest thing I've ever heard. Right. Yeah. So somehow that concept of blood Eagle wings tied in with this idea of the murder of millions of innocents in the name of whatever, whether it's London or Paris or Rome or New York or Los Angeles or anywhere in the world, Hmm. any great city, what that city is truly built on. And, uh, um, it all just tied together in my head. I came back to the hotel and I was like, you know, just got that song out of me. And I called Pearl. I was like, wow, yeah, you told me to go for a walk. Holy shit. What an intense walk I just had. <laughs> like I get millions of ghosts in London just like following me around. And, and uh, so I explained that whole concept to Jack. And then he took that, my lyrical concept and turned it into this masterpiece of a, of a mo- eight minute movie you're going to see soon <laughs> yeah it's amazing and I, I think it sums up that whole thing perfectly the, the ending is incredible especially but yeah um, it, it pays off yeah yep, stay with it yeah. <laughs> all right well um i think we've done an hour cool which has flown but it's been a pleasure yeah right on pat it's like no time at all one right cool thank you man cheers i love doing podcasts i did uh you know who mark Marin is yeah you know, the wtf i i've I talked with him in January, and it comes out this coming week. They they held it for album release week. Amazing. And that was a, I've known Mark forever, like since the late '90s, like you know Largo comedy days in LA, and uh, um, we've known each other forever. And then Brendan Small does this once a month thing called Baked in LA, where it's comedy and music. And hmm. I've done both with him. I've played guitar and I've done stand up. And uh, um, and Mark's on a lot of the shows too because he does stand up too and he play, he's a really good guitar player and he's like I gotta get you on the show one of these days and I was really excited because besides Mark being great it's like the biggest podcast back home anyway yeah. so um, I can't wait for that to come out and the conversation was really good I actually got him to tear up it's <laughs> <laughs> so like an achievement yeah I, I feel like like I've been talking about doing it for like a year and a half or something and it's you know, I listen to Rogan and I listen to Dunk. Do you listen to Duncan Trussell? I don't it's- listen to anyone's. I don't have time. If I, I, Do you- I have hard enough time watching the TV shows I want to watch or yeah. reading the books I want to read. Or, yeah. You know, it's just... I find when I'm... I, I listen when I'm driving. But, um, yeah, I, I like the I like the format that is, like, voyeuristically sitting in on conversations. Right. And, I think and- I'm going to do Rogan's that soon. That would be sick. Yeah. Yeah. We know him from when we were on a TV show news radio that he was on in the mid nineties with like Phil Hartman. And I, I don't know if that was ever on here or anything, but mm. it was this, it was a TV show in the mid nineties, uh, about, uh, our news radio station. Lots of people went on the like big, big acting careers from that show. Of course, Phil Hartman, you know, Simpsons and Saturday night yeah. live was murdered by his wife. But, uh, um, me, John Bush, and Frankie got to play ourselves on an episode where one the main character decides she's had enough of doing news radio and gets a job at MTV. And yeah. her first interview is with Anthrax, and she totally fucks it up. Um, like she pronounces Pantera Pantera, and like we just totally rip on her for that. And and, um, and Joe Rogan was on that show. He was one of the main characters on the show, and so we like met that guy way back when, way before MMA yeah. <laughs> or any of that stuff. What a, what a trip though, man, to to be to be to be getting to do all these things. Yeah, like if the longer you from, stay around, from, the more the more weird music. things happen. Yeah, I mean right. it's especially when you put yourself out there. You know, I'll let it be no. You know, people know they see that I do other stuff. So once in a while, like you know, these weird doors open. Hmm. Um, 
Now I just hope I can meet Stephen King. That's like the last thing. I just want to meet that dude. We're yeah. going to try and get him the right liner notes for my next book. I'm, I'm working on book two right now. Uh-huh. And, uh, What's it about? It's about me. <laughs> it's, it's actually more just it's going to be stories. It's going to be um, crazy rock stories. Well, that, that's not even the, the right way to put it. You know, I hate the cliche of it's crazy tour stories, you know, because it is. But at the same time, it's more than that. It's, it's, um, it's, I had still a list of like probably 20 really, really amazing tales that just aren't even in my autobiography because contextually and just things just didn't fit. Yeah. And I wouldn't have been able to spend enough time when you're telling that tale to take like a left turn. So, I just kept a list of things that I knew and then I started writing those stories out and I sent them to my editor and I said, what do you think for book two? And they greenlit it immediately. So, right. um, cause I've got some fucking killer stories that people don't know. And they're like outside the realm of just like that. It's mostly not metal stuff. That's the thing. It's not pigeonholed into just us hanging out with Exodus and trashing a dressing room. Who <laughs> like who cares? Yeah. You know, there's, there's just a lot of just killer stories. Yeah, man. I think that it's a beautiful thing to be in the position to to do something that you've always loved to do and, and always, you know, as a kid, look at and think will, will, will be, as, we, as I said at the start, a thing that just seems unattainable when you look at, you know, when I was looking at Maiden and stuff, I never thought I'd get to do some of the things that I've done. But it's an incredible thing and, and everything that comes off of that Blows I think my mind. I think people want these kind of stories too. You know, when, yeah, when man, people I read love these it. rock books, it's what they want the most. So I, I got to tell the life story with a lot of really cool tales in it, but there's so much like so much not in that book because we couldn't have an 800 page. Like it was up to me, my book would have been like 800 pages, and 300 of them would have been photos too. Like yeah. when I first when I first submitted uh, first submitted the photos for the book. Nobody told me what to do. So, uh, you know, I'm, and I, I need photos from like birth till where the book ends in 2011. So I must have submitted 400 pictures with captions for everyone. <laughs> Took me like a week and a half editing down to that much, even. Yeah. You know, which I really felt told the tale through the book. So if you're reading the book and then you get to the photo pages, Oh, here's what he was talking about this and this and this and this and this. It was like 400 photos, all cashed in. And my editor's like, uh, "This is fucking amazing." Uh, usually, you have to like pull teeth to get people to even do anything. He goes, "The problem is, uh, normally a book's gonna have 16 photo pages, yeah, right." He goes, "That's it." He goes, "This is about oh 128 photo pages." Do you know how expensive your book? You're not doing a photo book. Your book would be a hundred dollars if. You know, if we did, and it has to stay under $29 or something, you know, yeah. the production costs. And uh, and I'm like, oh, all right. I'm like, well, how many do I got to get it down to? He goes, I don't know, 30 or 40. I'm like, are you fucking, no, there's no way. There's no way. I said, I'm telling you right now, it's impossible. I, I Cancel the fucking, I'm not doing yeah. the book. Yeah, how do you this edit that so down yourself? Me. I got it down to... Uh, we went through like three edits and I got it down to whatever it is now, which is about 90 something, just under a hundred yeah. photos. I think maybe that are in there. And even that was more than they wanted. And the book price jumped $3 or something based on that. But, uh, um, uh, yeah, it was like unbelievably difficult for me to do that. 
Oh man, I look forward to the second one. I, I was love, like, I edit love the that. fuck. I don't even give a fuck. Change my words, change the story. I gotta have these pictures in here. <laughs> People want <laughs> photos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, I think one of one of my favorite ever things that happened when I was recording. I did um, <clears throat> excuse me, I did an album with Terry Date, and uh, as we were coming to the end of tracking, and uh, and uh, and vocals were getting done, I was sat in the lounge, and um. And I had one of those moments. I was like, I'm making an album with this guy that's made albums for yeah. all, all these incredible artists that I grew up listening to. And I, and I He's started, another one we almost worked with. He's yeah. a sweetheart, man. But yeah, and, and I was listening to all this different stuff. And, and he, he walked in to get a beer out of the fridge. And he, and he stopped. <clears throat> and he went, oh, I've not heard this in eight. I can't even, I think I was listening to Handsome at that point. And he was like, I've not heard this in ages. So he came and sat down and he cracked his beer. Right. And we listened to the song. And then he told me an incredible story about when they made that album. And I, and I went, I'll be honest with you. I, you know, I was, I was in a... <laughs> anyway, I was in a certain mindset. And I was like, I'll be honest with you, man. I've been listening to a bunch of your different albums. And I'm having kind of a moment. And he was like, what else have you been listening to? And I was like, oh, I was listening to Pantera. And he was like put it on so I put on a song and then he'd tell me this amazing story about when they were tracking and, and like even in pre-production and then we'd finish that and I'd be like and he'd, he'd go what else and I'd be like oh I listened to this Deftone awesome. and that is one of the most incredible moments I've ever had in music I love those stories you should get man. him on your podcast I should do <laughs> but I don't know that he'd necessarily want to talk about half those things that's true exactly that's, that's the, the problem that is the with problem with a lot of people is they can't they can't tell their story till after they retire that's I know plenty of people who are going to put out the best books for our generation people who are going to put out some of the best books ever once they're done touring yeah that's <laughs> true when you can really tell the stories <laughs> right. wait for people to die as well. yeah, yeah exactly yeah. All right. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Nice that was fun. Yeah, man. Right. That was awesome. Thank you to Scott Ian for doing that. As you can hear, it actually wrapped up. But then, uh, and then we started kind of talking about podcasts and and books and stories again. So I thought I'd leave that in actually because it's it was cool. Um, you can find Scott online. Uh, his website is scott-ian.com. On Twitter, he's Scott underscore Ian. Uh, the new Anthrax album for All Kings is out now. Um, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I just, you know, like I said, when I went back through it just to check all the levels and everything, it was a real good one, I thought. Next episode is with John Baisley of Baroness. And we essentially spoke about his artwork as he's an incredible painter. Um, and we spoke mainly about that. There's a little bit in there about Baroness, but mostly it's just about painting and whatnot. And I think it's wicked. Um, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, spread the love. That would be great. Hit me up. Let me know any feedback at Swim Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.